Just give me the answer. Maybe it'll come to me in a couple of days. Maybe you won't be around here in a couple of days. You threatening to blow my head off? Ask a silly question, you get a dopey look. Why are you holding back on me? You'd sell anybody for buttons. Yeah, but not to you, mister. Look, I haven't got a lot of time. You haven't got a lot of time. Listen, mister, when I come in here tonight, you've seen an old clock running down. I'm tired. I'm through. Happens to everybody sometime. Will happen to you too someday. With me, it's a little bit of everything. I back aches and headaches. I can't sleep nights. It's so hard to get up in the morning and and get dressed and walk the streets, climb the stairs. I go right on doing it. Well, what am I going to do, knock it? I have to go on making a living so I can die. But even a fancy funeral ain't worth waiting for if I've got to do business with crumbs like you. Be advised that the following podcast can and will contain spoilers. It is highly recommended that you watch both films under discussion before listening. Thank you. Uh, welcome, everybody, to the Movie Club podcast, the noir edition. My name is Kurt Halfyard, and I've got five other fine folks seated around the virtual table with me today to talk about Sam Fuller's Pickup on South Street and Joseph Lewis's The Big Combo. Uh, so I'm going to go quickly around the table and let everyone introduce themselves. Ariel Fisher, I write for Row 3 and also Rumored Magazine. I'm Thomas Wishloff, uh, and I'm currently in podcast limbo. Uh, Bob Trimble, uh, write for Eternal Sunshine Logical Mind as well as Row 3. Alright, I'm Jandy Hardesty, and I sometimes write for Row 3 and sometimes on my site, theframe.com, but I mostly just Twitter these days. <laughs> And uh, I'm Matthew Price, and I, you can find almost everything I do at mamo.ca. Wonderful. Um, as I said before, I'm Kurt. This is as close as you can get to a book club. We just happen to do it uh, with films, and uh, we happen to all be in... Well, we're not all in different cities, but we're all separated <laughs> by the computer, so if there's some pauses and quirks with the audio that's just a function of the format uh that we are constrained to so welcome everybody i guess we can dive right into well actually before we do i want to know what podcast limbo is uh oh, what okay. happened to the big <laughs> podcast basically what happened is uh i ran out of people that were actually like going to co-host with me 
Um, and so right now I'm working on something with Umer. It's should be up fairly soon. It's called Sunset Rising Productions. And I'm probably going to write film articles for that. But right now I don't have an actual podcast. Uh, recently I did my last episode with Jim Laskowski of the Directors Club podcast. on, And we talked about our personal top 50 lists. Nice. And Jim has been on this this forum before and uh welcome uh, as it's your first uh, time in there and ariel as well because uh, it's uh your first time welcome thanks so pick up on south street it's a uh, 1953 noir film set in the underworld of new york city and it follows a pickpocket who scores a communist microfilm in the process of a uh, of a subway uh uh, score, I guess. The kerfuffle between the FBI, the local cops, the commies, and uh, the woman, or I should say women, in between. For an 80-minute film, it's pretty stuffed with characters and plot. I, I'm quite impressed with uh, just how much they squeeze into this uh, short period of time, MacGuffin and all. And uh, so what we'll first do is go around the table in the same way that we did before, and everyone kind of give the, just an initial thought, whether it was your first time with the film or uh, whether you've seen it multiple times. Um, it was my first time with this. Uh, I'm not actually as well-versed in noir as I would like to be. But, I mean, generally, for the most part, I enjoyed it. It didn't really ensnare me too much. This is going to sound a little perverse. I was impressed with the violence, actually. Yay, Sam Fuller. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it just seemed a little ballsy. It was it was more than I expected for the time, and it was there was an element of brutality to it that I didn't quite expect, which which I think gave it more of an edge that kept me interested. Which kind of sounds perverse that I need violence to be interested in a film, which isn't true, but in this particular instance, it happened to work. So uh, this is my first time watching the film. Personally, I like noir films, but I haven't actually not very well versed in that much classic noir. And so whenever I like think of classic noir, I'm always thinking of like Maltese Falcon and like that kind of like very tropey noir film. Uh, the big thing that I really that really struck me about this film is that it felt really short to me. Like it's like 80 minutes long, right? And it feels ex like 80 minutes exactly. It feels really short, but I have to say that I did enjoy it a lot and I felt it was a very good film. I'll be uh, interested to see, uh, to hear when both of you watch it again, because it's my second time through the film. And the first time I saw it, I was, uh, I enjoyed it, but I was sort of feeling the same way. The second time, it really, really worked for me. Uh, all the little nuances, the dialogue, everything about his hangout near the water uh, really, really resonated with me this time. I, I think it's one of the classic noirs. And like Ariel said, it's for its time. It's not only pushing some of the, the violence boundaries, but even just some of the uh, not political, almost anti-political uh, pieces where you know he's actually kind of stuck in the middle and he plays both sides against each other and the only people he's true to are the other people that are kind of stuck in the middle and i i thought that was a, a great part of the film i have seen it before but it's been such a long time that it was almost like a new viewing uh first time viewing yeah i really enjoyed it i thought it was kind of interesting both this film and the other have i mean we'll talk about that more they're obviously noir films, but they also lack kind of a lot of what you kind of expect to see in some noir films. So I thought that was interesting. And yeah, some of the turns did go pretty fast, especially how she fell in love with him like instantly. Not that that's unusual for that time, but just the way it was done. But I just got to say one thing is like Thelma Ritter, man, she's like a national treasure or she should be. 
but and that's yeah that's my main takeaway is she is freaking awesome in, in everything but especially in this oh completely i was so thrilled <laughs> to see her in this i have to... yeah she scored an oscar nom for this too didn't she yes she did. i think she did yeah 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 and well deserved yeah uh, and and agree. So uh, this is uh, this is not my first time through the movie. I think it's probably my third or fourth viewing. So my relationship to it is uh, so. First of all, I should just full disclosure. I was so happy and excited to do a noir podcast because I I think I counted. I own about 180 uh, film noirs. Um, so I think I have every film noir that's been put on disc. <laughs> so Matthew um, Price wins this podcast. <laughs> no, well, it's does he get no a trophy or? The, yes, I get I get the coveted Mamo no prize. Um, <laughs> so many have won it. So it's and like I said, it's one of the first ones uh, that I that I bought and one of the earlier ones I saw. And I I, I saw it in the context of um, going on kind of a Sam Fuller kick. There was a big retrospective at Cinematheque Ontario and showed I think about twenty five of his films. So. Um, so that was how I first saw it was theatrically and then subsequently bought the, uh, criterion. Um, but I haven't been back to watch it again for like, I don't know, probably more than 10 years. I think just like in terms of like overall impressions, I think what struck me is a couple things. So more than most noirs as, as good, as good as the best of this, this style of them is the film feels uh, heightened, but actually kind of in the little details and nuances, very realistic, like the, like the pickpocketing stuff and the, there, there's a lot of like technical stuff in it that actually seems like as if it was like super well-researched and having actually researched a lot of that stuff myself, I can tell you it's all a hundred percent made up. <laughs> so that's something fuller i think is specifically really good at is making shit he made up seem super real like he really went to like first primary sources on all nope he just made it up pretty much and i think that's like a strength of that movie that that was my my big uh, takeaway this time well I, I should say uh you suggested this film um yeah. And uh, you may have already answered it, uh, why you chose to, to rerun or to come back to this film or bring it up in this forum. But I'll, I'll ask you again, uh, if you haven't answered it in the previous statement, what, what brought you to, to suggest this film? Well, a couple things. I think it's a, good, a really good example of uh, what you would call true, true film noir in that it is not conscious of its own genre because there, there was no recognized film noir genre at the time that it was made. Um, so we'll com we'll contrast it with Big Combo when we get to that, but Big Combo's exceptionally self-aware, whereas this movie is exceptionally not paying much attention to that stuff. He's he's shooting in black and white and using these tropes because it's cheaper, not, not because he's trying to like fit into a genre or anything like that. So I like it for that, for that, and I, I, I happen to really love Widmark in the film, and I love Thelma Ritter in it too. But I think, I think this is like, this is like my favorite Richard Widmark perform. He's such an asshole through the entire movie. <laughs> oh, he's, he's fantastic as an asshole. Yeah, yeah, he's a badass so, asshole. Yeah, he's he's often a psychopath, but he's rarely a jerk. My and, my, uh, my takeaway is you know, that you wanted more asshole on this podcast. That's why you. Uh, brought I felt like I was. I couldn't carry the load all by myself. I felt like. I to... Well, this is my first encounter with this film. It's been on my list, seemingly forever, as films to watch. There's still a few big noirs that are holes. I've seen 
I would never profess to be an expert in this genre, but I really dearly love it. So when you brought it up, I'm like, yeah, we're let's do it. Let's do that. Yeah. Uh, I, I watched the Criterion disc. My first takeaway was that the movie was from the point of view of Gene Peters' Dame character. And the movie kind of starts that way, but then flips to the Widmark character far more. I mean, it, it, it's kind of a shared movie, but the first block of time is really spent with the dame and i don't know usually it's the protagonist or or anti-hero and the dame walks into his office so this one felt a little bit different uh, right away and i had some really weird problems i don't know gene peters I, I i'm not familiar with her in other films she feels like she's dressed glamorous but she obviously isn't like and and the movie's conscious of making her not so but i found her to be such an interesting in fact all the characters even if they fall into cliche like the police chief um or even even uh widmark's kind of grifter they all really did feel like people like they really got character right in this movie and i i must admit as the movie kept lobbing plot and information back at me what pulled me through was i actually cared about these people and their kind of sordid low rent lives. And, uh, and I think that's kind of the point of, of the movie, even though it's got all this communist plot stuff in it, it really tries to get you into the pickpocket in his fish shack and the, and the girl that's just in one bad relationship after another. And then of course, when Thelma Ritter shows up, then I mean, whoa, she almost doesn't belong in the movie because she's outclassing everyone so much. She yeah. almost breaks the movie in her death sequence. You're, you're in a totally different movie for five minutes when, when she exits the movie. That's what I mean about it being almost an unconscious, like being sort of in that unconscious noir because it, it, pays attention to some rules, but it breaks others. Like you would never in a, in a conscious effort at noir have the audience sympathize with the femme fatale and be on her side, right? She's supposed to be the, the thing that seduces the hero and, well, and takes him to ruin, but actually she's easily the most sympathetically sort of like pathetic character in the movie, right? Yeah. And it's funny because even in something like the last seduction, a very modern noir that is consciously from the point of view of the femme fatale, you don't really like her. <laughs> No, she's remorselessly <laughs> awful. Like her. No. Yeah, I think the characters in this movie, like you said, Kurt, it's, it's kind of a testament to Fuller. Because uh, if you've read anything uh, or any interviews with him, he actually identifies with people like this, the people kind of on the corners of society. And I think that's why Ritter, Peters, and Woodmark, those three characters really, really stand out in this movie, is that he gives them the screen time, he gives them the characteristics. Like you said, they feel like real people. Personally, I, I mean, like, the minute I jumped on board with uh, Skip McCoy is when I saw that he had the best fridge in the history of ever. <laughs> like, I love that fridge. And it's well, multi-purpose. But that whole sequence, actually, of, like, that whole set of that shack in the Hudson River with a world-class view. Like, it's the, I'm in the gutter, but I'm looking up at the stars kind of thing. And him just sitting there all smug-like in his hammock. I, I, I'm not really entirely sure. Is it still because he's a young guy that he doesn't really just simply does not give a shit that he is kind of, even though he's on his third strike and whatever, he's still kind of, or is it all in that noir sense, it's all pure bluster and bravado. The film never actually, like, takes the wind out of... Uh, Winmark's character, so you don't really know. 
Well, you you can tell that you're in movie movie land with that with his house because where does that guy go to the bathroom or take your wash or anything? Right off the side. You sir. never ask. But Into I mean, the never... fridge, Price. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But... His attitude bathes him. His attitude clothes him. His attitude shelters him. That's it. <laughs> That's all you need. You can cover a lot of smells with just cigarettes, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> cigarettes, booze, and misogyny. It covers everything. With the misogyny and the the relationship in this movie it starts off pretty violent like the the characters meet well except for the pickpocketing part the characters actually have a conversation after he punches her in the face pours beer on her face and then they're like okay now we can have a conversation and yet it's strange that they do play the actual like the love angle like this is this woman has clearly had such a bad relationship or or with men or the sweaty communist guy that she's shacking up with right now is so far down the rung that she's in heaven after being punched in the face and someone pouring beer on with her. Beer. <laughs> yeah it's a little perverse and it was just i mean it you have to take it for the time and while yeah that kind of misogyny that's a little specific. I don't think that was happening on a daily basis to women all around the States. However, misogyny was rampant at the time, so it's kind of difficult to dissociate from that and to say, whoa, that's a little overboard. Why is she in love with him like three hours after he's beaten her and given her a beer shower? But, you know, you're just kind of forced to take it and just accept it for what it is, and that's totally fine. It, it was a little awkward. It, that just meh, didn't really sit right. At the same time, she she kind of gets him right again. It's that uh, you're sort of outside society, and you're you're your own man. You don't take shit from anybody. You know, you're against the cops, you're against the commies, you're against everybody. You can see at this point in her life, you know, in her painted on dress, why that's somewhat appealing. Uh, I mean, I, I kind of agree with you. It, it is sort of a funny thing to have her fall in love with the guy being punched in the face, but you almost kind of get it. I mean, I, I think that's the uh, that's the brilliance of his script and the characters is that you almost kind of buy that. That the fringes of society will cling to one another for support. Yeah, that's that's one of the main things that I kind of get from that. I mean, even Mo, and and Skip, like she kind of essentially turns them into the cops, but they they love each other. They have this relationship, and he kind of says, gives her an easy. I was like, yeah, well, that's Mo. She's got to live. You know, I've just been turned to the cops by Mo, and uh, I'll still give her a hug next time I see her. There's also that thing of the scale of it, right? So, you know, you talk about the misogyny of her, of him. Well, first of all, he hits her in the dark, doesn't know who she is, I think, initially. But he sort of bashes her around a little, and then she's sort of like, yeah, I can still see myself doing this. You know, there is this sort of underlying sense, like, actually, for her, that's a good day. She's <laughs> she's only she's only been hit by accident. So it's probably, you know, an improvement. <laughs> well, like, that's like the fact that after he, he slugs her, he uh, he checks her purse, rifles through her purse, doesn't bother checking her, goes through the purse first, you know, kind of grimaces, smirks a bit, then he throws the beer in her face. No, then he shows yeah. off his fridge to the audience for a second time, and then he... <laughs> That's right. <laughs> because that fridge is badass, so... Yeah. It is. As is his crazy, his crazy hiding scheme to go under the thing and then around and, like, swing on that hook... Well, that is I so assume awesome. he makes that swing. So well choreographed. He makes that swing just to not be like the clunking around. Like when he, the, the shack's great because he can hear everyone coming up to it, and, and he knows how to get a, get away with it. Yeah. Um, silently. Speaking of hearing things, though, I okay, I, I rewound it or whatever three times, and 
I don't know if any of you recall what the first line of dialogue is in this movie. The, the, the FBI agent says something to the other FBI agent. I mean, you get it from context, like he stole something out of her purse. But I cannot. I, I tried four times. I can't make that line of dialogue out. Oh, I can't remember it at all. I mean, it's like, something like something's wrong and I don't know. Something like that, right? Yeah. It becomes fine after that, but it was kind of... It's a good four or, five, four or five minutes of silence, I think, right? I mean, that, that subway kind of pickpocketing, which is a wonderful, wonderful scene after the subway flashes by with the whites and the blacks, and then it's just that kind of tension of Widmark coming into the frame. So that's a beautiful scene. Uh, some people say, I, I don't know if I buy it completely, but some people say that that was the inspiration for Brisson's pickpocket, which came maybe five years later, which obviously pays a lot more technical attention to the pickpocket. Like here, it's just a, a reason to, to get the story going. But it's, it, I guess it's a testament to Fuller's ability to frame just a small scene and make it work. And in a, like what David Mamet does later, he just, okay, we've done that. We don't need to do it again. We're moving on. Whereas Brisson, you know, he just spends a lot more time in it. But they both have the same pickpocket guy in the middle is has this no what we would consider traditional moral center whereas even the criminals and whatever dislike the commies and 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 whatever oh, i wouldn't do that for a commie we have to have code but he he doesn't care he's like i'm in my own private yeah. shack <laughs> well i was i was gonna ask has anybody else read uh Wismob? do you guys know about that book uh no no Okay, so if you get a chance, you should try to seek it out. Uh, Wizmob is by David Moore. He also wrote Big Con, which is the, the book that the movie The Sting is based on. And Wizmob is all about pickpockets. And I'll tell you the thing that he gets right, and, and that I, I guess my question is, I, I can't figure out why there aren't more movies that have uh, pickpockets in them, because it seems inherently cinematic to me uh, in terms of the actual mechanics of it. What he gets right in, you're talking about in terms of skip is that they don't really, there's, it's not even that there's no remorse. It's that their attitude is, look, if you're dumb enough to let me get that close to you and take shit away from you, you super didn't deserve to have it. (laughs) I deserve to have it Uh, because I'm better than you. The thesis of of Wall Street. Yeah, and that's how he plays. I agree. And that's how he plays all those people off and still seems to have some kind of compass because his whole attitude is, look, if I'm smarter than you, you just deserve everything you get. I don't care. You know, be smarter and I'll respect you. He definitely has that attitude toward the cops too. Like every time the cops and him show up, he's like, I'm just smarter than you. So it doesn't matter what you try to do. He's fascinated with the paperwork. Give me your, show me your warrant. I need to, you know, like it's always about like prove that you're smart. <laughs> uh, I, I was never sure how much of that is supposed to be bluster because he is on his last strike or whatever. I, I, I can't believe the three strikes idea goes all the way back to the 1950s, but they, they clearly make a point of giving a few lines of dialogue to the fact that he'll be put away for life. Maybe it is that bluster that has rubbed the cop. The great performance by the actor who plays uh, Captain Tiger. Tiger. <laughs> um, Mervyn Vi. Yeah, oh, he's he's fantastic. He he was reminding me of another character actor, but I couldn't. I can't picture the the, the name. Not not Hume Cronin, but like some Ed Lauder. He reminds me of Ed Lauder. Yeah, is, yeah, is, agree. Um, I like the way they play that he's. Just his assholishness has driven the cop 
kind of mad. Like the cop, he's putting way too much effort to get this guy that is on the scale of things in New York City is probably pretty low criminal. And yet here you have the captain of this particular squad going out of his way <laughs> to bust them down. And maybe that just be might be because it's a movie and we're just in a self-contained like four location kind of thing, but. I don't know. It, it's it's got its charm. No, I think I think it reads that he's he's kind of skips bitch through this whole like he really everybody skips bitch. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> Maybe that's the name of this episode. Um, but uh, uh... <laughs> but I just think like I don't think it's a big stretch to watch this movie through the lens of like man, this guy's kind of a big loser. Like it really, he's never gonna win. That's part of the fun of it. Well, that's the the closing line of the film is, again, her putting faith in this probably bad guy. Like, I think the last line is, want to bet when the when the cop says, oh, you'll yeah. be back. And, and then they, like they walk out on a positive note, but, but know, in exactly, light of what yeah. you've seen so far, she's not too bright. <laughs> no, I, I know. They, they no. walk out like they're going to make a life together. I'm like, that guy will be picking pockets in 10 minutes. What, who are they kidding? What? <laughs> What, kind of, what is he going to take a desk job? What is going to happen to them? They'll have to get the queen size hammock. It's, so. it's honestly the most bleak, quote unquote, happy ending since the fucking Truman Show. Oh, it'll be fine. He'll, he'll, it'll be okay. No, it won't. He's not going to last five minutes. Have yeah. some faith, Matt. Come on. But it is true, though. It's that really weird conception, like prospect that you know this guy who has survived being a pickpocket and being a criminal his whole life is all of a sudden going to clean up not beat his woman and have a good and have a good life no he's just he's going to continue pouring right. beer on yeah. her head <laughs> that's just going to keep right happening uh, now is it is it saying that she's going to keep going up the pecking order at this point she'll find a incrementally slightly better because as bad as he beats her and pours beer on her uh, i don't think he's got a candle as to when I can't remember the character's name, but the sweaty communist boy. Joey. Joey. Max are around the room. Oh. oh my goodness. That's all one take. And it's just a, it's pretty, it's, brutal. it's a pretty epic smackdown. I was going to say that was the scene that really grabbed me for some reason. Like, I mean, I was into it the entire way, but then he comes in and, you know, the sweaty communist starts beating her up and just throwing her around the room. And it, I was kind of impressed because, I mean, you wouldn't normally show that kind of violence, at least not from anything that I've seen, against women in a film. You'd suggest it and, you know, I'd give you the back of my hand. Why? Because I love you, honey. And, like, that's the way. That's just the dialogue, right? And that happens. But this was different. You know, she was breaking furniture. There was very obvious risk and danger involved even in filming that, let alone anything else. And it was... It was ballsy, and I, I, you know, with regards to the filmmaking aspect of it, I really respected it for that. But in terms of, you know, Skip and Candy making a life together, no, I'm sorry, they're screwed. He's going to go back to picking pockets. She's going to go back to climbing up the pecking order because that's all they've ever known. That's all they've ever done, and that's right, a happy ending. Exactly. <laughs> Chipper, nice status quo. Yeah. But at least he's not yeah. a communist. Well, yes, that that's is right. moral. Well, oh, <laughs> so, I love that. Uh, that one point. The one point in the movie when Mo says, like, she, she's horrified that he's, you know, thinking about the communists. And she basically says she doesn't even know why she hates them. She just does. And I kind of love that little comment about, well, because they're communists. That's why I hate the communists. That's right. 
Yeah, I wanted to actually bring that up. Um, does it, like I'm actually interested. What is everyone's opinion on communism? Like, does the film? Does, does anyone think the film? Like, does the film go really oh, hard for the line movie? On communism? Okay, it's, it's 1953 in the United States of America. Everyone hates communists. I mean, like, everyone's the Marshall scared Plan, to death of them. Exactly. Like, the Marshall Plan ended one year previously, but so I don't know whether he's like. I mean, like, I know he's probably going hard line on it. And I mean, there's one scene where, like, the scene where Joey just skips pounding on Joey. In, like, the background, you can see a poster for the American uh, army. And I don't know, like, I thought that was kind of interesting. So I don't know if it's taking a super hard line because of that one line with Mo, but then at the same time, I do think it's taking a super hard line. So I'm lost. Well, well, I think I think that's the brilliance of it. It's somewhere in the middle. I mean, uh, was it Hoover? Jager Hoover was really upset at the movie because it wasn't patriotic. Remember the, are you are you waving the flag at me? Like they were horrified by that scene. And yet, I think some of the communists were kind of like, oh, look at that, it's another anti-communist movie. So he found that nice little sweet spot right in the middle. Where he offended everyone, the sign of a exactly. good movie. Right? <laughs> oh, sorry, just Go to ahead. follow up really quickly on that point about communism, that, you know, the, the blacklist was already well in effect in Hollywood in 1953. It had been in effect for six years. So if you talk about the Marshall Plan, that runs totally separate to what was actually going on, which was that those witch hunts had been ongoing. I think Kazan had already turned in a whole bunch of people i don't think it's a i don't think that uh there that fuller is making any kind of larger point i think he's just using them because he needs a convenient uh mcguffin driving bad guy organization it could be anything it might be the underworld it could be anything it doesn't matter like it's it it so matters less that they're communists than that they're they're kind of this whatever some weak cabal of you know losers but communists were the communists were the terrorists du jour. They were they it was still very much like Jandy said, you know, it was nineteen fifty-three in America. Communists yes, the damn red, the damn dirty communists. It's just the wheel landing on it's that. It's an easy part. scapegoat. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And they're yeah. an easy scapegoat in terms of everybody's gonna hate them. You have I, a universally hated group. It's why, you know, the Nazis work so well in Raiders. <laughs> yeah, and I suppose Fuller has made a number of war films, and his war films, all the way up until The Big Red One, were never political. They were always about the little guy soldiers. No, they're on the ground, yeah. In, on the ground. Yeah. And there's not yeah. a lot of preachiness to his films. I, I I don't know if it's a looking at Pick Up on South Street in 60-year hindsight that even brings this into the conversation. I'm curious, actually, maybe I should look online to see if there were any contemporary reviews like a new york times review well from the 50s it's, it's as it's as important that they're communists as it is that the bad guys in true lies are arabs yeah like it so doesn't matter and yet <laughs> yeah. it does but it doesn't but it does it's that well, weird it does to ariel's point in that it just, it keeps coming up in conversation because they're constantly throwing well either he's constantly throwing everyone's patriotism back in their face and at the same time, the movie kind of ends with him not dealing with the communists. So there's, you can have it, like like Bob said, you can kind of have it both ways, which I guess is to the strength of the film, not to the weakness. Like, no one wants a movie that states what it is and is 100% clear and moves on. I mean, the part of the fun of this movie is how it keeps turning around and you're, like, stuck with the weird morality of, of um, Skip's character. I, I, it becomes the film at about... The point where the cops drag him in for interrogation. Yeah, well, they, I mean, they accuse him of treason, and he says, "Who cares?" 
I mean, right there. That's <laughs> kind of sums it up right there. Uh, Yet the uh, girl is super, uh, and maybe it's because it's a it's a side effect of her being duped. And and I guess in these movies, nothing's worse than being duped. So she freaks right out about it when because she's going around thinking he just works uh, or Joey just works for a corporation, and, and then all of a sudden it's funny a corporation how long that it takes has for secret her to... film that needs to be <laughs> career. Who? What corporation is this? Business secrets, trade secrets. The next big technology. That's the other thing. That's the other thing. It's the formula that there's only one copy of that cannot ever be reproduced. That is a useful formula. I think we can all agree. <laughs> uh, Kurt, in connection to your New York Times article on the uh, Wikipedia, there's an art. There's a abscript from an article on Variety, and uh, I quote: "It reads." If pickup on South Street makes any point at all, it's that there's nothing really wrong with pickpockets, even when they are given to violence, as long as they don't play footsie with the communist spies. So I guess <laughs> that was my complete takeaway as well. I think I put that in my letter. Back. That's, that's, that's fascinating. Does. That Variety, the least political in print publication ever, sees so politics or writes yeah. politics inside the film. I think it slipped in. You know, one thing uh, for sure that just um, Ariel, to your point earlier about the about the where he sort of slaps her around. I think sometimes not. And not I don't want to specifically talk about that, but just I think sometimes what's good, what can be good about a movie from a directorial standpoint is when the director really understands when there's just one aspect that they have to kind of overspend on. So uh, the example I'd use is in Shallow Grave. They spent all their money on the set. Right. Like that was what makes Shallow Grave good. Let's just build one set, but it'll be amazing. And in this movie, it's the stunts. He, I, I got to think at least a third of his overall budget was just on stunt sequences between the fight in the subway and the stuff in when he's slapping around. So like it's just so slickly way above the pay grade of the rest of the movie that for me it like till the fight in the subway makes the movie for me it's like it's from mars that fight and it's like long takes as well i mean yeah. when he, when he, also when he when he drags that guy down the stairs on his I chin know. Boom, boom, boom. i know oh, i know I know or when he tries that that tracking shot where the guy tries to run through the um turnstile and he runs behind him and grabs him and the camera perfectly pulls over at the same yeah, time yeah yeah like yeah. what the shit that is amazing amazing that's well, as good yeah. as the fight in shane also showing that it's a product of its time or or, or something that the fight ends somewhat anticlimatically like you you just have to think that in a modern movie he'd push him into the subway by that yeah. Yeah. and yeah. this just fades to yeah. black at the end yeah because unlike in modern movies there's still human beings that can't you know push another human being into a train <laughs> it's but also it's... just messy <laughs> hey well they don't have to clean it up they flee the scene they're gone it's done that's why they do it. There's no cleanup required. Yeah, but then the subways would shut down and they couldn't do their pickpocketing thing the next day. Yeah, that's right. True. He's very pragmatic about the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> Two things that I wanted to, to, to say before I'm done is uh, one, th I, I don't think it's intentional. I'm sure this happens many times in many characters, but Thelma Ritter's character, the way she has the scene selling the ties and she's the stool pigeon and she's selling things feels at least a little bit like she's an inspiration for Bubbles in The Wire with his hats in the first season. It might just be complete coincidence, but that, that whole America is doomed to repeat itself and its mistakes over and over again in small-time crime, which I think is a big theme of at least the first 
couple seasons of The Wire feels like, I don't know, it's kind of a neat thing, or I, I don't know if it's just complete coincidence, but it's it's nice to see There's a, you can almost draw a line across 50 years from film to, to television. I just love that she is such a good interrogator, <laughs> better than the cops. Like, she knows how to get a description that will actually help them find the guy. Like, just her going through all the different ways that you could pickpocket things and the different little ticks that they all, that each of them had and how she was able to narrow it down to him, like, just based on that. I thought that was really cool. Especially since we had seen the pickpocketing happen earlier and could, like, tell that she knew exactly what was going on. Yeah. That's probably my favorite scene. And that everyone uses the word canon. I, I, I just, <laughs> it's the first time I've ever heard that slang for that, Canon is accurate, although it's yeah. not usually used in that, in that specific context. But uh, mm -hmm. the thing, what I said earlier, the thing that they get totally wrong, they never explain why he decided to work the subway like that in the first place. That is a stupid way to work. Like, incredibly dumb. He literally works in a, in a space where he can't get away. Right. And um, so, but a canon specifically... Uh, is used in the context of uh, crews of pickpockets, which is how pickpockets would normally operate. They'd operate in teams of about uh, three or four people, and the cannon is the one actually doing the lifting. So uh, sometimes, call, if they're good, they're called a class cannon. Class cannons are like they run the crew, they hire everybody, and they're in charge. It is something that's used in con conjunction with pickpocketing, but not a guy working alone would be more colloquially known as a loser. Which <laughs> <laughs> is also well applied in, in the movie. Yeah. I mean, he's de he is desperate for sure, and he's right out of prison. So I can, you know, I can sort of see the context for them saying, you know, maybe he hasn't been able to get a crew. Uh, to actually do this properly. But it seems incredibly... Like, you would never um, pickpocket someone in a space with no exits. You would always... Like, you, he'd be much more likely to do it as people were getting on and right. off the train. Well, he does rather than he, I think he does have a time to the stops. Because he does nail the exit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And doesn't exactly. let the FBI... But there's all that time when he's got the paper out and he's, like, making eye contact with them. It's like, no, you never... <laughs> never he'll remember you. Don't do that. <laughs> Matt, I'm interested to know how you know so much about this. Like, do you have some, like, experience with pickpocketing? No, no, so I mentioned <laughs> earlier there's this book called WizMob that's really, like, a history of this and gives you huge insight into how these guys... In, into how crews like this really operated. And there is a movie waiting to be made. I'm telling you about the real way that these guys operate. It's incredibly uh, intricate. The closest I've gotten is a James Coburn movie from the '70s called "Harry in Your Pocket," which, which is <laughs> I know it's a good title. It is really, really filthy title. But uh, he plays a, a class canon named Harry who hires a crew, and uh, Walter Pigeon's in it, and it's a terrible movie for sure. But it gets the pickpocketing closer to being right. Than this movie does. How can that possibly be dear? a terrible movie? Would I know it sounds like it would be great. Oh, you know how it's you know how it's possible because the male lead in it is Michael Sarazen. Oh, okay. that's that's the yeah, there you see you answer my question right your there. face right there. That's but like many subjects, you can spend you can lose hours watching YouTube videos. I remember quite some time ago it, it might have been you that sent it to me, Matt, of a yes. guy talking about all the pickpocketing moves while he's Apollo. doing it, and it is. Yeah. A mesmerizing and it's not even like world-class cinematography it's a single stationary camera but it's mesmerizing to watch nonetheless so in fact this all started because the article on that guy apollo mentioned this book whiz mob and that's how i got oh so this, this rabbit hole the whole... so yeah 
yeah but it's it's been well worth it it really is it is a fascinating sub world for sure oddly enough my favorite scene in the movie is totally throwaway but when the dame goes and she's working her own underworld circuit over the course of the afternoon and she goes to meet lightning oh the guy in the bar and he's eating his noodles and he's not making contact to her and he chopsticks every crumpled bill that is such a wonderful detail now whether that was written or whether that actor said hey hey sam sam I, I've always wanted to do this. Uh, this scene it's so is great. so much fun. And the, the crazy Chinese waiter bit and the whole thing. It's so Runyon-esque, that scene. Like And then he, he and then he uh then he gets a little um little Chinese uh he says thank you or whatever at the end in Chinese of the scene. So it's a fa- it's a fascinating, you know, we're all in this together kind of low life thing. Even in that little scene he he works that in. Uh, he, he works that in. One scene that's missing from this movie is when he buries Thelma yeah. Ritter. Because I wanted to see, because he had no money. He couldn't pay to put her in. The, I wanted to see him sneaking in grave robber style <laughs> and plant her in. Because well, he gets the cop's authority to get the body. But then what? The movie moves on. Like the movie just, what did he do with the body? <laughs> it's just bizarre. That, that is kind of a, a, a wonderful kind of coded, though, to her previous, uh, I think she was, it was probably in her first scene where she says that she has to keep living to die, because if she ever gets buried in Potter's Field, it would kill her. And I, I just yeah. love that kind of sequence of lines, because it, and, and she says it, you know, without any kind of like, haha, there's a little pun for you, and just such a very wonderful, natural way that right there, that alone makes you love that person. Yeah, everything she says has like no irony at all. Yeah. She's, yeah. she's totally genuine. <clears throat> this, I do not think, is a funny joke, Tiger. <laughs> Just her, her reaction is very... I, I, I haven't no. seen this... I've seen her in Rear Window. I haven't seen... I can't say I've seen a ton of Thelma Ritter performances, but the few I have, she's always got that little bit of finger-waggishness in her performance, which is, which is endearing. Well, she has the same thing in All About Eve, and she mm-hmm. most certainly has the same thing in Miracle on 34th Street, and kind of that dis- that disproving judgment, but at the same time, sympathetic approval. It's strange. It kind of teeters the edge. But, Jandy, it's like you said, she's a national treasure. She totally is. She's yeah. This one, she just has, like, she has that same kind of quality that she has in the others, but she just has that extra bit of kind of warmness and gravitas because like you really feel like when you see her face on the screen, you just feel this is a woman who has been through it and you know, she's, she is just living to die. And, and you can feel that even in the very beginning when she's, you know, cracking jokes and stuff, you're like, no, she has, she has seen stuff. <laughs> yeah. The one, the performance yeah, I always forget know. about is Birdman of Alcatraz too, where she's just stupendous in that as well. And, um, you know, the thing that's funny is, like you said, there's no irony. And I think it's because she has no irony, like, to inject. I don't I don't think she's she ever reads the lines in a self-conscious uh, way at all. 
because I don't think it's in her. Like, I think in another time, someone acting that way, like if someone was to take on that type of characterization now, you just imagine them pausing between takes and sort of going like, I don't know, too Jewy? What do you think? Like, <laughs> but there's just no sense of that at all. Like, you just never, she's just literally acting her, the, her pants off through the whole thing, right? This is the best I can possibly make these readings. Like, I just want to invest my whole body into this. She's and got it's, the it's, lip quiver right down. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You're so, oh, it's almost Shakespearean. There's almost this sense of like grand. Uh, she strikes me as being like, ha like Hamlet's mother. There's a stoic <laughs> nobility about her performance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's striking even in, in such a small role. And really she does have a small, a small part. She's not in it for very long, but that death scene is, is remarkable. And I mean, I granted, that's in part due to the writers, but she really gives it life. I almost didn't care I... what happened in the movie after that. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I guess I wanted them True. to get their comeuppance, but after she was gone, I was just like, oh, okay, I guess there's some more of this. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's other people in the movie. Uh, I guess I'll pay attention to you. <laughs> I have to say, uh, one, one last uh, favorite scene for the movie is we were talking about his hideaway before, uh, and he's got the ladder downstairs to, to hide, but he also has that great little sort of patio off on the side where he can recline with his beard. He's got kind of got the cushions. It's like, dude has got one heck of a little uh, little pad right there. He's just a boy with a clubhouse. It's the treehouse that all little boys want, I think. <laughs> that's actually that's the perfect description right so there. Great. Actually, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just kind of such a weird location for noir, I think, because noir is so like, I mean, he's in a city, but it, it because you don't see all the other buildings around, like it feels a little bit more rural and like set apart from the rest of the city. Uh, I don't know. It definitely contributed to changing the tone that way. And that's one of the big things that I felt as well was that the tone isn't very distinctly, like it's distinctly noir, but at the same time, it's not. And you're right. Normally you have, you know, very you know angular shades on the windows and it's in some skyscraper that you imagine is like 50 feet tall and 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 you don't get that from that you get you know this movie couldn't afford to do that like it's yeah no it, i know it, it's it's matter of oh fact. you can do it on a pretty low budget you just put up like a sheet and it's like okay that's a built wall of a building i mean i've seen some movies that do it on some pretty low budgets but this one was not interested in doing that and you know that's that's good too yeah, it's true. I mean, noir was all about kind of obscuring that kind of stuff, right? I mean, that's they would use light to their advantage to mm -hmm. obscure the fact that there is no building, no wall, no door there. But, hey, it certainly kind of feels like there is. In terms of his relationship to the story, it's unusual to me that there's never – there really aren't any moments where he is in a huge amount of danger. There's normally in these types of noirs, the hero is at some point is stalked or chased – by someone that never really happens in this. Well, it's and he's really... usually defeated. Like, I mean, you say it, like it's not a completely happy ending because of what's going to happen. But usually, the end of war is like the main character is dead. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, or compared to or, that, or his hands have been broken, or yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not also... his skin that is at stake in the movie. To a degree, isn't it his morality? Isn't that the play? Like, whether. Fuller intended it or not, it's kind of there on screen. Of you know, is he going to do? You mean the, the movie's right a battle for thing? his soul? Like it, 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 in a weird way, it kind of is. Yeah, like that's why it's not yeah, yeah. with guns pointed and whatever, because it's everyone keeps telling him what he should do as opposed to shooting at him. Yeah, 
That's that place. That's sure. Yeah. I mean, like the highest point of tension he's in is probably when he uh, takes Joey's gun on the train there. But we yeah. all, I think we all know that there's no way that Joey's really going to shoot him. That guy's all talk. <laughs> <laughs> he can only beat up women. I mean, yeah. exactly. Well, he's agreed. all talk unless you've got agreed. ovaries. But he, he wouldn't even like, like go chair. out and go to meet McCoy earlier. He made his girlfriend do it. Yeah. Yeah, he's too much of a pussy. Yeah. The only the only way would be that if the only way would be if uh, if Widmark actually had some ovaries just in a jar and then he might be able to. But otherwise, <laughs> do, do not just, put that past just carry him. Them with him. Past him. Sure. <laughs> Look, I'm a good pickpocket. Look what I got away with. <laughs> she didn't feel a thing. <laughs> he's he's performing sneaky hysteria. <laughs> Good to see you relax for a change. Oh, well, evening, Captain. Well, anything urgent? Urgent? Hmm. Anything urgent, I leave to my subordinates. There's some good uh, fence and cigars in that no, box thanks. over there. No, thanks. No, I'm off cigars. Brandy. My doctor's got me off everything worth living for. Almost. <laughs> Planted. Yes, sir. Now, there's got to be a stop to your complete disregard of the taxpayer's money. I paid for this apple out of my own pocket, Captain. Planted, you've spent $18,600 in the last six months. Investigating one man, a single man. Brown's not a man, he's an organization. Now I need money to fight money. Now look, Lieutenant, I've got nothing against you personally. I admire you. You've got too many brains, but that's not your fault. Now, what about this $18,600? How am I going to explain this to the Commissioner? Well, I dictated an explanation if you want to use it. Memorandum to Captain Peterson covering expenditures of the 93rd Precinct Station. The combination is growing stronger every day. The only way to crush it is to get the top man. When Grazzi left the country, Brown... What do you think this is, a homicide investigation? You're dealing with the largest pool of illegal money in the world. You're fighting a swamp with a, a teaspoon. Next up, we have uh, Joseph Lewis's very, very stylish uh, gangster picture, if... Uh, pickup on South Street is pretty functional in its lighting and cinematography. This movie is going all the way with noir tropes. It's made in 1955, which is, I'm guessing, is about at the end of the noir kind of heyday. Tail end, for sure. Um, it's, the, it's the end of unconscious noir or the beginning of conscious noir, depending on how you want to call it, because, like, right after this is, uh, is the Orson Welles one, and, like, there's there are what we would call film noirs, but they know what they're talking about. Right. <laughs> um, and the story in uh, The Big Combo is a really smart cop uh, is up against a really smooth criminal, and they both love the same woman. And while he's trying to make the arrest, the criminal himself is, like, all of his secrets, the, uh, uh, the wonderful gangster in this movie... Um, uh, all of his secrets come out, and he has two thugs, which get a fair bit of screen time, and one of them is a shockingly young Lee Van Cleef, no mustache, and I'm pretty sure he's gay with the other uh, with the other uh, thug, just the way they play oh, those yeah. scenes. Uh, so the movie has a lot of secrets around the crime boss <clears throat> and a lot of broken hearts. Over the course of uh, over the course of its runtime, as the cop slowly begins to kind of 
snare him through through the dame in this movie who is not really a femme fatale she looks the part but she's drug addled or at least low-key for most of the movie she doesn't ever have a a scene where she pitches herself to the either <laughs> to the anti-hero he's already in love before the movie starts so uh, we'll go around the table again what did you think i preferred this between the two of them i thought it was totally more interesting i liked the play off of the different female characters i kind of really enjoyed that they they each had their different role they were all fairly innocuous but at the same time you kind of had like rita had that embodiment of the femme fatale she had kind of all the all the right visual cues and everything and it just it, it seemed like more of a character study and something i could really get behind this was the burlesque, and i just found yeah, it more so. intriguing yeah yeah, I'm with uh, Ariel on on this one. Uh, I I watched this one first, and I was sold. When I think and think Mr. Brown's first lines about how he's like first is first, second is nothing, and he says it like he's an auctioneer, and he's very quick and he finishes his dialogue very quickly. And I was on board right away, instantly with this movie. I actually really liked it a lot. The big thing I noticed a lot with it is it's got some weird, sorry, it's got some weird theme going on with uh, like masculinity and how like. Mr. Brown tries to be this big macho man. He says, I'm the man. That's why all the women love me. And then at, at the end of the day, he, she, like his, the, his woman like basically turns him in. And I thought that was very interesting. And I have to admit that the cinematography blew me away, especially that last shot with the fog. That okay. was awesome. Yeah, that, that's an iconic shot for sure. And that's uh, John Alton, I think, who's the, the DOP there. Again, that gets back to the low-cost kind of shooting because this is a fairly low-budget movie too, I think. And I, I think I was reading about that scene where they just really kind of threw up two walls, they had a light, they threw in some fog, and boom, there's your airport hangar right there. I think they threw a wheelbarrow in there or something like that. <laughs> um, I, I really enjoyed the movie too. Um, it's my second time through it. Um, if I liked it maybe a little bit less this time, it's because Richard Conte, the uh, bad guy, Mr. Brown, is, I think, so far above everybody else in really latching on to the kind of noir characteristics. I, I love him in this movie. I love his lingo, the way his timing, his smirk, everything. Nobody really quite matches his level. And I think that was just my one sort of minor issue with it. Otherwise, it's really a story of the two guys. And I think that's why the, the femme fatale here is actually kind of bland, whether she's drug addled or not. I, I think she's barely even kind of there but that's okay because the story is really about the two guys and it's a power play you know each one trying to emasculate the other one and i found that kind of fascinating the second time through i actually don't know if this was my first or second time watching it i thought i had seen it before but i really didn't remember anything about it and if i did see it before then it was in a really crappy print on netflix and i kind of wasn't paying enough attention to care about it this time it really kind of blew me away like i, I loved it this time yeah, the, the cinematography, it's, I mean, it's stylized, but I love that stuff. And yeah, I just like how everyone is playing an angle, really. <laughs> Even like the, the, um, McClure, I don't know what he is. He's not, he's kind of one of the thugs, but he's like above the other two thugs, I guess. And he tries to play his own angle at the end and fails miserably. And I, I, I don't know, I like that everyone's trying to find their own little piece of this situation. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, I think it's my second time through. I know that I bought this as part of just like buying all the noirs and I, I watched it in that context. And it was probably like five or six, no, maybe longer, maybe 10 years ago as well. First of all, back to Lee Van Cleef and Earl Holloman. <laughs> Just to start, it's very important for movies to have a C-3PO and R2-D2, and I feel like this movie has that with those two guys. 
They're 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 equally they're as gay as C3PO and R2D2, that's for sure. What I do like about this movie over uh, uh, over Pickup, I don't like it more. I like I think Pickup's a better movie, but this one has that thing of the Hollywood star system of all of the depth in terms of the character actors right down the line to like John Hoyt, the guy that plays Niels, the, uh, the, the shop owner, the Swede that I'm sure you guys like, he's very familiar in a bunch of yep. other stuff. Ted DeCorsia, who's yep. Bettini. Yep. Ted DeCorsia, you guys, I mean, I forgot, but he's in the killers and are in the killing. Sorry. And he's like, he's stupendous in that one scene. It's he's all, he's so sad and amazing. Right. And his role. And his robe and everything, and uh, Whit Bissell and a whole bunch of other guys just kind of show up for five minutes, do amazing work, and leave. But the one that you were mentioning, McClure, which is Brian Donlevy, the reason that I think it's neat is because he's from a totally different school of character acting because he's actually a Preston Sturges guy, and he's getting he does very few noirs. And Donlevy is absolutely, I think he is terrific. His scene, his scene is my favorite scene. The scene where they kill him and pull the earpiece out. Oh that yeah, is my favorite scene oh, in the movie. Yeah. That that is. Yeah, as good that as was anything well Lewis ever put together. That's as good as the bank robbery in uh, in um, uh, the uh, what's it called, Gun Crazy. Like he just—it's so formally inventive and neat. And you know, you're just talking about the photography, and I think yes, the photography is, as always, Alton is you know kind of a genius of working for no money and making stuff look in- incredible, right? But uh, it's the, the playing around with sound and stuff like that is really that's that's Lewis doing that it's it's that's my my uh, thing that i'd take away from me we have to love the uh, the torture scene with the earpiece with the uh, there's a lot of stuff the in yeah 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 um uh, i think at the time you know they people were told like oh you'll be horrified you'll be squirming in your seat and it's actually pretty effective i mean it's kind of uh you know cheap compared to some of the stuff you may see today but within the context of that movie it's quite effective yeah I know I was squirming, so... The thing that holds it back for me is that Cornell Wilde is really terrible. Really? He's just kind of there. I he's think he's right. kind of Yeah, I just, I, there's no way for me to have any sympathy for him. It's all with, with Mr. Brown. It's not an equal mix. I'm oh, just like... I, oh, do I disagree? I, I, I must admit, the movie had me. It was my first time watching the movie, and part of the reason why I picked this movie... Well, A, if you bring up the Wikipedia noir page... The big image on that page is from this movie. It's the the hangar, the Casablanca shot. But it, it just when we did the Devils and um, Possession podcast, it had just got a Blu-ray release, so you could see it in the best possible restoration. So I haven't not seen a that yet. Single but... extra on that either. disc, but you do get a pristine transfer of the movie. In in terms of uh, Detective Diamond character, um, the scene where his boss comes in and he makes coffee for him and they have this conversation. I was so hooked, not just on the overall cinematography and the big room that they're in. That scene just keeps giving. It just keeps giving. Every bit of dialogue in that sequence is perfect. Like the, you're spending this much money. Well, I bought the apple on my own dime. Like it's just, and it just keeps going back and forth that these guys have this great relationship, but you know, they're, they're obviously, uh, things have come to a head and you get all of that in this very snappy thing. I, I really, I, I, I understand that the, the villain is a thug and he's got all the really fast noir lines, but I thought that the police detective was great. I, I thought he was great well, as well. 
It's it's more for me the fact that I think for everybody else who is pitching in tall cotton, most of these guys are real pros with this stuff. And what they're what they're all able to do that I think Wild is not able to do is they all play it two ways at the same time. This movie functions perfectly well as almost like a parody of these types of movies. Yes. Like the dialogue is so stylized and it's so ridiculous and crazy and over the top. And delightful <laughs> that they, yeah, they can they can play. Think about how Conti plays those scenes. He plays them with that crazy delight in the in the complexity of the language, but it still sounds like a person talking to another person. But while to some degree always comes off to me like he can't quite choose which way he wants to do it. Well, I and feel it, that that it just works feels awkward with his character because his character is the utterly straight shooting guy like he doesn't have all that much of a dark side or a, a grifting side about him he's like they constantly mocking him that he's too straight or too smart to be that straight or i i like in this case this was a case where i really did quite like i mean in a in a sea of like overacting or like big performances the fact that he just gets to be the straight guy i, I quite like the straight man performance and I do say that he's he's the righteous man in the whole thing. They keep saying it. Yeah. <laughs> yes, they do. His character actually reminds me a lot like a poor man's version of Popeye Doyle from French Connection, where he's kind of always one step behind Brown up until like the end of the film is the kind of thing I noticed. And he's got like the obsession thing going for him the same way is kind of how I felt. Obviously, I, he's not as awful human being as Doyle is. but Exactly. That's what I was going to say. But he's like he, – that's why I said he's the poor man's version. He's not – it doesn't have the awfulness. I feel like yeah. Lieutenant Diamond or whatever is going around shaking people going, don't you see what you're doing has a bigger picture? Like he's like – you know, he's constantly – he gives her the lecture about the, the mink coat, which is, which is kind of funny watching his lecture about the mink coat in this time because now it would be just a problem that you have the mink coat that they were tearing animals apart but he's like no 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 all these human lives that went into buying you this coat i feel that it's it's an interesting thing to me that in a noir movie he's more like um uh the main character in uh don siegel's invasion of the body snatchers where he's just shaking everybody <laughs> going don't you guys see that you're all like doing assholeish things and they have consequences like i I, I like that. I really did like that. See, I, I like the concept, Kurt, and and I, I don't think he's as bad, maybe as as Matt was saying, but I kind of tend to agree with Matt. He's in comparison. I I don't see him as the proper foil to Conti, even though the two of them are set up to be, you know, really kind of against each other throughout the the, the entire movie. You know, Conti kind of putting him down like ninety six fifty a week, and you know him going after Conti, but I just don't see it as being kind of an equal thing because of the way they approach the the lines and the characters it's kind of a niggling point because i still think the movie is fantastic but that's the one thing that brings it down a bit that and gene wallace who plays the um uh susan susan lowell i guess just she's, seems she's to, not great either no, <laughs> she's, yeah. but, but one of the blandest the excuse that she's popping pills throughout the entire movie so you can yeah. just write that down for better or for worse. <laughs> Dan, though, why they are so consumed with her. Uh, uh, granted, I guess they're more consumed with each other, but she is supposed to be there the central person There's a serious man-love context going on in this movie. Oh, yeah. Well, and there, she kind of serves, I guess, as the axis for control. If you can control, you know, 
what is it first comes to power then the women then I, the money i think they <laughs> deliver a version of that in this movie they pretty much lying somewhere second is nobody well, exactly and you know she's kind of you know i don't honestly believe that diamond actually loves her because he doesn't know her and that wouldn't have any basis in reality but noir has no basis in reality so it's this basis of control and he's there's you know and you could read into it whatever you want obviously but I, you know to me there's this element of the beautiful dame and i want to have control over her and if i have control over her everything else will seem okay but she's you know being mistreated by the this horrible man and I must save her. And I don't know, there's this weird heroics that happens in it. And it it's something that happens in a lot of films and I, it just, yeah. It's a little strange here and she's all too willing to accept it. But again, you guys, you guys hit it on the head. She's completely bland. And I think the pill popping is just the perfect excuse to mask that bland performance. Noir is nothing if not for its like machoism <laughs> buried in, like, even the, even the women, in noir, often tough-talking and macho, and you you look at the Mr. Brown macho versus the Lieutenant Diamond macho. They both have they're all both playing their own thing. So the, the, I think that's a big part of the flavor, <laughs> the the bula base of this movie is that machoism on display. And it's so interesting because of the three women in the film, the one that kicks it is the one who has the most power and the most ferocity and it's and Rita I mean she has there's that one line that I I think I tweeted it as soon as I as soon as I heard it was you know hoodlums detectives a woman doesn't care how a man makes her how a man makes his money just, how he just he cares love. how he makes love mm-hmm. and it you know that's such an I mean come on for a woman to say that in a film then that's a ballsy statement man that is that is she- gutsy she She's has brass. She has brass in the vernacular. She has brass. Time. She yeah. has brass. She has gumption. I like women who yeah. have gumption. Yeah, it feels like it could have been an Ida Lupino role. Like, and it, she almost looks a bit like her in the movie. I'm not familiar with the actress who plays Rita, but uh, Helene Stanton. Yeah, but she's but she's absolutely gorgeous in it too. That's the other thing. Like, yeah. Once again, this movie is hitting above its weight on all of these smaller roles. Plus, thing she she's she's stunning. She's in a showgirl's you know kind of gown. Well, not even a gown, just kind of skimpy dress. Putting on makeup in a mirror, he barely even notices uh, Cornell Wilde when he goes to see her, because he's so I guess you know possessed by by this other woman and this other man that he doesn't see what's right in front of him. And she obviously loves loves the crap out of him doesn't even notice well there's a strange virginal subtext there about his love for susan i mean she's you know she's untainted she's and that's even represented by the fact that she's like a pure white blonde there's that strange imagery of her helplessness and her virginity and her childishness or childlike demeanor she needs saving she needs rescuing she needs telling how to live and telling what to do and that seems to really appeal to the machismo that you were talking about earlier, Kurt, that doesn't really apply to any of the other women. Like Alicia is, and even in that representation of even color schemes, Rita has raven black hair and wears black clothing and she's a burlesque dancer. So she doesn't need help. She's got, she's got her shit together. And then you've got Alicia, who's in a mental institution, who's got sandy blonde hair. She's dirty. She's tainted. There's something tarnished there. But then you get Susan, and she's this idyllic blonde who's incapable of standing up to anybody. She's she's pure white snow. It's funny that, and the one time that she does stand up 
to Conte, uh, he says, why aren't you wearing white? And she says, I'm, yeah. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of wearing white. So yeah, that's uh, kind of fits and right in. <laughs> exactly. She's starting to kind of take control. And even by the end, I mean, she's not in black or anything, but by that last scene, the, the Casablanca scene, as you called it, Kirk, um, she's in like dark gray clothing. It's like she's starting to make that transition and that shift and to accept her role as a powerful female, standing up for herself and being her own woman. Yeah, it, it, it's Casablanca where the, everyone said, what's missing at the end of Casablanca is a five-minute gunfight. That's really... <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's Casablanca by way of heat. Yeah. <laughs> there is actually... Uh, that, it's funny that you mentioned Michael Mann. There is... Oh, for sure. You know he loves this movie. <laughs> and and same thing with Gun Crazy. There is... Uh, um, uh, Lewis is a big fan of setting these gunfights in the confusion of fog and mist. Where you don't, you can't get your bearings a lot. It's that's a big part of the. I think there's a big appeal there, just visually for him. Well, thematically is, too. <laughs> yeah, and this is yeah. such a smoky, steamy, misty, foggy movie. Like the light is reflecting off that stuff everywhere. It's yeah. from a style point of view, it's gorgeous. Well, the stadium shot at the beginning. It never actually. I don't even know what show or what they were going to. But she runs out, and there's. I guess it's like the, the like antechamber to the thing like where she's running and there's a, a bar there and you see the one guy that's on her tail and whatever that scene is fantastic it is so good with her and her white dress and it's just surrounded by it's no there's no gray in that scene it is truly black and white and it, yeah it, it, there's not mist or anything it's just these people are so small and dwarfed by such massive features um in that it, it's yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful... I guess maybe in 2014, where there have been so many versions, no one can even really pin down what noir is. It comes down to, I know it when I see it, and this is so self-consciously noir, that it's like, yep, I know what I... I know this. It's, it really does shove it in your face. I, I don't know how you guys feel. I feel like that is by design. I, I think by this point, they're actually trying to make a movie like those other movies. Even though there's a cop... And there's the cop station and various different things. There's no actual slats, which I, which to me is the other iconic uh, thing where you have city lights coming in through the Venetian blinds. And yeah, uh, trapped in the I, bars. I think they, if they're self-consciously doing it, they completely avoid it in this. In well, this. there's the thing that is. Um... I think it's easy to forget is there's actually a pretty wide range of stylistic cues in these movies overall. And you can pull out several of them and still leave lots of them behind, right? Like there's there's no point in this movie where the hero gets conked on the head, goes unconscious, and wakes up to a whole new set of circumstances either. Like there's plenty of film noir tropes that you know you can a, use, yeah, but you don't have to use them all. Like there's there's no flashbacks, there's no voiceovers, there's yeah. You know, all that kind of stuff. They get away at the end again. <laughs> sort of. Well, not Conti. Yeah. But the, the femme fatale, if you, if you want to call Susan a femme fatale. Yeah, but well, it's still a matched not, pair at not. the end, but they don't get away with anything. <laughs> they're, they're just yeah. matched because the movie has to end. Right. Yeah, it's not quite as fatalistic as some of the noirs, but it's funny. Diamond is almost the femme fatale for Rita in some ways. <laughs> she follows yeah. him, and yeah. look, what, look what that gets her. 
But yeah, Jenny, I think you mentioned the use of the bars. Like in, in the prison, there's a few other scenes where they use the bars, and it kind of obscures the faces. So they, they do use a lot of that stylistic stuff as well. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but it uses kind of a similar editing style to a lot of noirs with the fades and stuff like that to like to change scenes. You mean the fade-outs on people's faces? Yeah. Maybe like, just like fade to black. The thing that I notice is that there's just a ton of conversations where someone's in the foreground and someone's in the background and they're not facing each other, which is a movie thing to do in general. But I mean, this movie, I swear it's half the dialogue. Either someone's being interrogated directly or they're looking away from each other and like they're, he's, he's in front of the camera and, uh, and, and, and he's in the back. Was that great scene where uh, Conte is, sorry, Brown, I guess, is talking. He's talking to Diamond, but he's saying everything to Joe who's behind him. And Diamond's behind Joe. He says, tell him, you know, this. And tell him that. And they're all looking the same way, and they're kind of in a line. That's that's a great scene, too. I just want to point out as a kind of random observation that both uh, Cornell Wilde from this movie and uh, Gene Peters from the last one we talked about wound up for their absolute last on-screen credit being in Murder, She Wrote. So I don't know if that... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, did, I didn't notice that in Cornell Wilde's IMDb, Murder, She Wrote. Uh, uh, what a horrible way to talk cap your It's IMDb the love boat list. of the 80s. But yeah. in, in a, didn't a lot of the contracted, like when the studio contracting system broke yes. up, didn't like a ton of people just migrate to TV? Maybe it's a, a function of that stability <laughs> especially episodic tv right. because they were just reliably they would show up on time they know their lines i mean you know that's good training for just showing up every week on rockford files or whatever did anyone see the the dynamite sequence in this movie coming i, yeah. I, I feel like i should have but i totally yeah. didn't I saw it coming, but I wasn't expecting it to be as wily e. coyote as it was. I was gonna say it's hilarious, isn't it? It's actually it's hilarious. Really funny. When he opens up the box. Especially because he opens it up and you hear the tick 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 and you see the sticks of dynamite. It's like yep. no universal sign for danger in the fifties. Run I just, You it, you almost expect them to like open the box and then go, What eyes pop out of his head. Well, yeah. Right before uh, Mr. Brown comes in and hands him the box, I do think it's funny that uh, Earl Holloman's character says, well, I've had about enough of salami. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I think it said, uh, I've swallowed about as much salami as I can. Okay, even so, better. Yeah. Even yeah. better. <laughs> He's no, no wonder he blows them up. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and, and, and I wonder... Too. I, I mean, I know there's all sorts of coded things because of the censorship codes and whatever at the time that I watched Miller's Crossing, the Coen Brothers film, several times and somehow did not see the Buscemi and uh, the Heavy in that were gay lovers. Like, I, I can't, I kick myself at how many times I watched that movie and never noticed that when it's so crucial to everything and yet it's kind of... Buried in plain sight. And they and, and they specifically say dialogue that denotes that they are, in fact, gay lovers. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> there are, in fact, explicit lines in the script. I know. I and know. yet, it, I'm it, with it, you the first couple times I watched it when I was, you know, a younger man. I also did not catch it, or at least thought thought it wasn't ironclad. It is ironclad. ironclad. <laughs> so I'm not alone on this. I, I feel a little bit more comfortable that because. Uh, 
I don't know, having a conversation with someone and, you know, years ago when it came out, it, it just stopped the conversation and I had like a flashback no, it's, at the end of it's like this, where I'm like, you, wait a minute. You feel, yeah, you feel like it's that comedy thing of like the movie is a person talking to you and they're going, these two characters are gay and you're going, what do you say now, huh? You're like, you're just, you're not even. <laughs> so Kurt, getting back to the uh, the production code kind of stuff, they they sneak a bunch of things in this movie. There's the, the one scene where I think it's the, the time she's just like wearing white and then Conte comes up behind her, Brown comes up behind her, starts kissing her and she oh, kind of tilts her head back. Scene. And then he moves down. He goes right down. Out of frame. Right out of the frame. Yeah. And you know, fade to black. Yep. And I was I was reading something earlier on today. Apparently, uh, Cornell Wilde and Gene Wallace uh, were married at the time, and Cornell Wilde did not speak to Lewis for the rest of the shoot because of that scene. <laughs> well, how, what? Because he saw the dailies. Because you wouldn't know. Yeah, or, until... yeah, be, yeah because the, the censors would have said, "Well, wait, wait where did he go?" And Lewis is like, "I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Where, where do actors go?" And uh, the camera's yeah, yeah. off them. Yeah, no, it's, and, it, it's uh, a great Apparently, sequence. Wilde did not talk to him. I think it stands right out because it's pretty bald. Like it, it, where most movies wouldn't do that at all. Like in that era, it is. It's pretty in your face, as they say. Um, it's right up to the line. Uh, the the other thing, just to quickly tie this together a little bit with the communism thing in the last movie. So this was written by Philip Jordan. Uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with him. Uh, he he wrote a lot of really well known movies. He wrote um, Sid, did he not? He wrote El Cid, he wrote Man from Laramie, but he famously also fronted for other people who were blacklisted constantly. So he he has lots of scripts that are accredited to him that, in fact, he never wrote, but because oh, right. those other yeah, like folks David couldn't Griffiths. work. Yeah, so he, he fronted for Ben Maddow and, a, and Bernard Gordon and a whole bunch of other writers who were unable to work because of what was going on with the, with the witch hunts. So, you know, movies like this with their kind of overarching mistrust of the system and stuff they play into that a little bit on the opposite side of that they don't get too much in the way of the cops like the lieutenant does some things that are just only happening in the movies like when he just arrests everybody and he's clearly like <laughs> there's a point where the where his lieutenant in the opening scene is like she went down to cuba you went down to cuba she did this like he's spending right. money and his police captain is actually quite indulging him going you know what you're a professional and you know what you're doing okay we're out of money now but up until this point i've let you get away with that which to me has some sort of faith like when again when you look at something like the wire talking about that it's all about juggling budgets and hiding money inside the organization whereas it does actually look like in the big combo that the police actually function well at least in that institution is left fairly sacrosanct like the the cop is a totally upstanding guy so it is got quite a love of law enforcement the movie's practically a police procedural for some reason on my notes i wrote down feels very municipal like 12 years a slave i have no idea why i wrote that <laughs> <laughs> like, like i have no idea notes from another no, movie i think none yeah. of those Wait, words what? make sense together That's no they don't <laughs> I do think it's interesting that both these films kind of have, I don't know whether you guys chose it this way on purpose or not, but they both have like the cop and the criminal side of things. Um, you know, like some noirs are complete like detective stories. Ones, it's only from his point of view, right? Yeah, but then there's a lot that are just from the criminal's point of view or just you know, like double indemnity or something. You only get their point of view. But this, both of these two, we get both sides. And I, I kind of 
enjoyed that as a, a change, I guess, <laughs> from a lot of other noirs that don't have both sides. Yeah, well, clearly they had to give you a good chunk from the criminal side just to indulge Richard Conti and, and whatever. Like, the, we never mentioned it, but the, he pretty much sums up his whole character. The movie's very good at summing up characters with scenes, but the sequence where he's explaining to the boxer why he will never be a great fighter is giving you massive amounts of information while still being massively entertaining in the delivery of, of that dialogue. I, I don't know how this movie would work if you, if you tried to tell it either of those other ways you, cause it is yeah. kind of like the two men coming together at the end, all the bravado and bullshit from uh, Mr. Brown. He's, he's actually crawling around on the ground with a spotlight on him like a worm at the end it's it's really from an audience point of view it's very satisfying to see that character fall so low because for a moment there i thought oh well maybe the criminal organization um like his second uh, like mcclure will have finally pulled things around and his secrets are out and <laughs> mcclure does not have the charisma to pull people over to his side like, yeah I, like for a while though i thought the movie was gonna play to where you know he's constantly bullshitting to maintain his position but mcclure is the actual real competent guard that he's shitting on to fortify his own position and then you know the truth will out uh that's really where i thought the movie was going so i was massively surprised when nope van cleef and and his and his pal were still you know of course, on Mr. Of course this is this is quite a criminal organization that has like four guys in it right I mean, yes. it's just those four guys. <laughs> it's it's not exactly Breaking Bad where you keep going wider and wider. No, it's just, it's really us. We do everything. <laughs> Even the guy that you thought was above all them? Nope. It's just these four guys. I feel that... I mean, that's the, a budget thing, but still. The, the Again, the, the McClure character was kind of a stand-in for the rest of the organization that you don't see. Um, mm -hmm. Even though all the dealings is with his... You really don't see the Mr. Brown doing criminal activity. You just see kind of him going to nightclubs and eating dinners. Like, you don't really see him orchestrating crime or running like he's an accountant, a bookkeeper or whatever. Right, uh, which I kind of really like about the movie, working. that it's low budget and they just assume that you're going to fill in those blanks. Yeah, like, I, they I, trust I, you I, to be like, here's the situation and you just go with it. I think that's fair. In the same way that there are no exteriors in this movie other than the opening credits and at one point like a car pulls up to these massive tanks like a big like water tanks or something which is a great scene there's almost no exterior in this well there movie are they're just all they're just just fog everywhere yeah it's just fog <laughs> so yeah i think i think the uh, the syndicate or the organization is actually called the combination right i mean i guess the, the title mm -hmm. comes from that and i think they even say like they're, they're rounding up all the people from the combination but you're right you never really get to know what any of these people do you just see those four guys apparently it all centers around them and two of them are just you know the muscle is there actually uh is anybody aware i mean that trope of the main bad guy secretly being dead and issuing the fake orders so that the other guy can control everyone i i have seen that before at least in in comics but i'm curious i can't I, it feels like that should i've seen that in movies too but i can't remember anything specific where that's come up that seems like a good idea <laughs> that's what I'm saying. he's in sicily yes um yeah. Yeah. i, I feel like in, uh, in fantasy like 
speculative fiction fantasy, that's a common trope where the advisor is standing in for the king and everything is long and dead and he's just letting it go forever. I feel that's that's in novels more. I've read it. Yeah. Seen yeah. It in- well, they use it in the in the comic book, The Goon, but there I, I can't I'm trying to think of another use of it but i can't but i know it just seems so like when you find out that the guy's been secretly dead i'm like but of, of course he is. of course <laughs> of course that makes perfect sense well i actually felt that the secrets played out very very similar to uh like there's a i guess a section of polanski's chinatown where everything kind of knots together right near the end and, and like yep. a lot of things now immediately make sense to you as the viewer i feel I don't know. Maybe that was a an influence on on Townsend. I mean, clearly, they're both in the same genre, just many years apart. But I, I felt that this it had a bit of a like a Chinatown vibe to me, even though there's no honest cop in in Chinatown. I just feel the um, or the way that the bad guy has this many secrets, and the movie is actually about the bad guy's secrets coming out. That's the driver of all of the story is the horrible things that the the main bad guy did and everything revolves not around the bad guy per se but the actual secrets coming to light well like chinatown doesn't really give you much like this movie does chinatown doesn't give you a lot of the answers just straight here are the answers it kind of they all kind of fall into place like in this film like where it's just at, at points you can kind of see oh that's what the anchor's for oh that's why he needs the swedish person and then you it kind of all works backwards together yeah i give this movie huge props the cops using technology and stuff like there's a whole sequence in the like photo enlargement room which is really cool like uh, where they're all standing around he's like i can i can blow up that sign and find out like some actual procedural detective work i mean the polygraph i i don't know when the polygraph was invented or, or how often it was used as a trope in movies up until the 50s but i really like the way the polygraph scene and then it's kind of echoed with the mobster polygraph which is just them shouting into a wire and deafening the poor cop like it's like yeah. well this is our polygraph <laughs> it, the, it's interesting the... to watch that side of things because i don't feel there wasn't an emphasis on the mechanics or technology of solving crimes in the 50s no they the only the only other one that's like that is called north side 777 which has a prototypical fax machine in it <laughs> like in 1947 where they're like we think we can transfer pictures over the wire you know and <laughs> they're just sitting and watching this thing like pixel by pixel assemble in front of them for hours <laughs> Though there's a real emphasis on on that in this movie, and I don't think it needs to be there. It's just like like the cinematographer, the cinematography, like the just amazing dialogue. It's just they're all elements that make this thing work. I don't think the performances or the characters are the sell for me in this. I think it's all the technical stuff that they're shelling it in, and that and that's what makes it being self conscious mm-hmm. not being an issue because now you are like a neo noir where it's it's very clearly throwing it out in front of you and going, look what we can do. And I totally dig that, but particularly the dialogue, this movie's got so many like rat-a-tat-tat lines or whatever the the dialogue surprises in the way it turns, not in a plot sense or whatever, but just in a, well, I didn't think that would go there that way. And 
I, th- I think I'm pretty used to noir dialogue, but I still feel this one surprised me many, many times with its turns of phrases. I thought it was quite Well, nice. Conte has a, has a great line. It kind of almost echoes a line from Pick Up on South Street where he's talking to uh, McClure, Joe McClure, and he says, you'll be lucky to live so that you can die in your bed. Yeah, exactly. or, again, I probably mangled exactly. that a bit, but I thought that was just an awesome way yeah. to just really let him know that you'll be lucky if I let you live so you can die an old man alone in a bed. And, My and favorite for... is the guy to shoot himself in the head if he's going to go to prison. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the, the actress, uh, the, 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 the dame in white, um, she, her speech of I live in a maze is, is, is an incredibly impeccable scene of dialogue. Her, you know, where all, all roads and pathways lead back to him. Like she's, completely ensnared I, I i could close my eyes and listen to this movie and be just as happy as as looking at the pictures it really does move with words i just found the quote that i like which is what he says because i have lunch with him that is not a crime i'll have lunch with anybody i'm democratic <laughs> <laughs> i will go around uh, the virtual table uh, one more time you can and should plug sites podcasts where can people <clears throat> find uh, your writing or various different things on the web um so again it's ariel fisher you can find me at row three or on my own website which is arielfisher.com and i am writing now for Rumorg magazine my name is thomas bushloff i'm currently in podcast limbo but i'm gonna be writing soon for sunset rising productions at sunsetrising.wordpress.com i think and i you know i'm working on a podcast for that right now <laughs> I'm Bob Turnbull. I write for my own blog, Eternal Sunshine of the Logical Mind, as well as Row 3, and uh, sporadically on podcasts. And I'm on Twitter, at The Logical Mind. And I'm Jandy Hardesty, and you can find my writing mostly right now at uh, The Frame, which is the-frame.com. Once in a while on Row 3, if I have something that I think is actually good. But uh, also on Twitter, uh, FaithX5. And I am uh, Matt Movies everywhere, on Twitter, on Facebook, everywhere else. You can find virtually every creative thing, uh, impulse that I have at mamo.ca, primarily the Mamo podcast, but many other things too. And I am Kurt Halfyard. I'm at Triflick on the Twitter. You can find my writing at Twitch Film and at Row 3 and our Cinecast podcast that we host there. And that brings us to the end of this show. Thank you very, very much, uh, everyone, for uh, joining and, and, and lovely conversation. Our next episode uh, will probably be sometime in April, and it will cover uh, P.T. Anderson's Punch Drunk Love and Robert Altman's Popeye. The pairing there is about as obvious as we have ever been <laughs> on this show. So uh, I hope uh, you enjoyed this show and hope we will tune in then take care